As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Well, thank you so much, Karen. If you point your phones at that QR code, then you can pull up the passage and a talk outline, and we'll be spending most part of the talk on the first bit, just to, in case you panic. What is God's will for my life? That's been a very high order question for all our year 12 graduates. Is it the Lord's will that you get a job? Is it the Lord's will that you go to uni or learn a trade? If so, which one, which course? Which job? What is God's will for your life? Should you marry? Should you remain single? If you are to marry, who should you marry? How do I know my choice is the Lord's choice? What is God's specific will for me? Now, maybe you've ever longed for um, the open plonk method to work. That's where you open the Bible and you say a prayer and then you put your finger on the page, you plonk it down, and then that reveals God's specific will for your life. Beck Crawley should marry Isaac Bate, you know, written there. But of course, there aren't those verses, are there? How do you find God's will for your life? Well, we're told here in 1 Thessalonians, what you do is you read your apostle, you read Paul. You want to know what God's will is for your life? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That is God's will for your life. Maybe not exactly the thing that you had in mind. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about how we are to do things, how we are to perform in a job, in a marriage, rather than which job, which course, even which person we marry, provided that person belong to the Lord. God is concerned in how we live. That how we live, the attitudes of our hearts, the words that come out of our mouths, the actions, uh, reflect him. Insofar as the basic question of what we do with our bodily urges, even insofar as that. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. He says that's God's will for each of us. 
not for other people, but not for me. No, it's God's will for you as well. Now, why does Paul address this? Paul is writing to a very young church. He's been immensely encouraged. The gospel came to them with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. They'd turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They were waiting for Jesus to rescue them from heaven. And importantly for them, they'd also remained loyal to Paul despite pressure to move on from him and his message. Um, You do that, you move on from the gospel. That's disastrous. And he says, look, the whole time I've been with you, I was like a father to you. I was urging you to live lives worthy of God and of the kingdom into which he has called you, chapter two, verse 12. And I was also, chapter four, verse one, instructing you how to live so as to please God. And so now, chapter four, verse two, he's urging them again in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. In verse 10, he urges them again. Urging is what Paul is doing here. He's urging the Thessalonians and through the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write these words, the Holy Spirit who is alive and work here today, he is urging us as well. Urging us through the instructions Paul gave the Thessalonians with Jesus' authority. Urging us in verses three to eight to please God. Urging us in verses nine to 12 to please God. Two different areas of pleasing God. How do I find out God's will for my life? Answer, well, you follow Paul's urges. (laughs) You listen to them to live a life that pleases God. I take it you do want to live a life that pleases God, don't you? Don't you? Okay. This is God's will for us in our lives. Paul tells us how. How do we live to please God? Well, two things, and they both involve our bodies. The first thing is by learning to control our bodies, and the second thing is by working with our bodies, using our bodies to work. So here's the dad's chat, right? Here's the father urging urging his children in the faith. So what God wants for us, how we live to please him, is first of all to learn to control our bodies. He says it's God's will, your sanctification, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now when he says you should avoid, he's not sort of being soft and saying, well you really should avoid it unless of course the urge is too strong and it's too hard for you and you can't not go that way. No, no, no. When he says you should avoid, he's not hypothetical. It's a very strong word. He says you need to totally abstain from. You need to be far away, that's what it means, from sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? Well, it's more than adultery, that is, if Paul had only intended to speak to married people and say, please don't sleep around, he would have used the word for adultery, but he doesn't, he uses a broader term. He uses the term, actually, the the literal, literal one is porneia. We translate it sexual immorality, porneia, from which we get pornography. In the Bible, it is an umbrella term which means all sexual activity outside of marriage, either before marriage, during marriage, if it's with someone other than your spouse, or after a marriage has ended. So what does it include? It includes having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married, even if you've moved in together, even if you're engaged to be married but aren't married yet. Why? Because we're not married till we're married. And having sex sex with someone we're not married to is not on. God wants us to totally abstain from that, to run far away from that. So that includes one night stands, it includes having a fling, it includes having an affair on the side. And when we include 
Jesus' teaching on lusting as committing adultery in your heart, then sexual immorality really includes having fantasies about people, uh, sexual fantasies about other people. That's displeasing to God. That's something he says you've got to avoid completely. Jesus says you've got to run from it. Now, why does Paul mention this for the Thessalonians? Uh, Did they have a particular problem in this regard? Not as far as we know, except Thessalonica was a key city in the Roman Empire. It wasn't that far from Corinth, which did have a problem in this way. The Roman Empire was the most sexually loose empire in world history. Sexual promiscuity was the air that people breathed, if you were a man. Women, married women, women planning on getting married, of course they had to be chaste, but it was just accepted that men would not be. So a Roman man had a wife as an intellectual companion, her job was to run the household, to bear the children, but it was accepted as normal that Roman men would visit prostitutes and that they could use any slave they had as a sort of live-in concubine. Now most of us, I think, would find that sickening. But honestly, is it any less sick than our own society and our own culture today? So, I'm told the average age that our kids are first exposed to pornography is when they're 12. Yikes! Pornography is available 24-7. It's streamed instantly to whatever device you have, devices we carry all the time. It simply assumes that if you're not married, you'll be sexually active because sex has been elevated to the key to living a fulfilled life in our society. It's taken for granted in the West that if you go out on a date, you're gonna end up in bed after, you know, on the first night, and you'd be prudish or weird if you'd think otherwise. It's now almost impossible to find a a movie that's not PG without a sex scene in there. It's the air we breathe, right? And yet the tragic irony, with marriage no longer seen as the context for sex, fewer people are getting married, and yet with all this pressure, of course, to have sex outside of the context of a stable, nurturing, loving relationship, which is what marriage provides, Australian adults are actually having less sex, not more sex, but less. And especially our young people who are facing an epidemic of loneliness. So you ask yourself, which is sicker in terms of sexual norms, Roman society or ours today? Well, many see the Bible and Christianity as sort of down on this, and God is a killjoy. But God's plans are good, he planned a better way than our way. God made us in his image, male and female. Uh, Male and female, the same, equal, in dignity and in value, but different, perfectly designed to complement one another. And then he gave marriage as the relationship where intimacy can be enjoyed. And then he gave sex within marriage as the powerful glue to unite and bond a husband and a wife together. So the creator's context for sex is marriage and the purpose of sex is to powerfully bind together a husband and a wife um, and it's the right context of course for children to be born and nurtured. But today and also back in Roman times what's happened is we've ripped sex out of its created context as a glue to hold husband and wife together. We've reduced it to a right 
just to experience pleasure. But when you separate, you rip apart two people that a glue has bonded together, it leaves people raw, hurt, feeling used, betrayed. No wonder Australia has a loneliness epidemic because we have distorted and perverted a very good gift and powerful gift from God. So after the fall in Genesis 3, God therefore speaks in his law against the ways we distort and pervert God's good gift of sex between a man and a woman within marriage. And he's very explicit at saying what's not on. He says homosexual sex is out, incest is out, bestiality is out, sex before marriage is out. You might want to check and read Leviticus chapter 18. Why is he so explicit? Because we've thrown out his good design and because we're now fallen, we no longer know the good. And instead, we will naturally choose what is evil, what is perverted, what is distorted, what is lesser, what does us harm. And so the reason why Paul raises this whole topic is that even though the Thessalonian Christians have begun so well, Paul knows their society, the Roman Empire, it's sexually broken, like ours. It's the air they breathe, and so they need to be discipled into a better way, and so do we, and Paul outlines a better way. He says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified means to be made holy, which means to be separated out from what's common and set aside and become useful for God. Now, when someone believes in Jesus, what God does is he sanctifies us. He purifies us through his Holy Spirit, applying Jesus' death on the cross to them. His blood washes us clean, and then he sets us aside to belong to him and to be useful for him. Now, this is good. Being sanctified means that our lives have purpose. It doesn't just mean we're washed clean. We are washed clean to be useful for God. That is a very positive idea. If we don't see that that's a very positive idea, we are going to read this chapter as a series of thou shalt nots and think it's all bad. Well, it isn't all bad. He's setting out positives and negatives, and we need both. You need the positives and the negatives because we are broken. You need the positives to steer us in the right direction. We need the negatives to warn us from straying off the path. So positively, verse four, God's will is for each of us that we would learn to control our bodies in a way that's holy and honorable, honorable to God, honorable to each other. Negatively, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. The point is that through the gospel we do know him. They don't, we do. Um, the Lord is not driven by lust. Many of the pagan gods were. The Lord is driven by goodness and grace and love and faithfulness and kindness and self-control. That is his character. That's a good character. And he sanctified us and, and enabled us to know him because he wants his character to come out in the lives of his children. He wants us to grow in godliness, godlikeness, right? And verse six, in the matter of controlling our own bodies, Paul says, 
No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So, deliberately arousing someone else, tempting them, leading that person to sin against their conscience and against God when you're not their husband or wife is to take from them their holiness. It's to burden them with shame. It's to load up their guilt. And because you're not their husband or wife, to leave, that is to wrong them. Uh, okay, I, I'm aware of the audience here, but it's, it's the times. Anyway, tricky. I'm gonna talk about porn. Okay. <laughs> so, do you, want, you could take them out if you wanted to. That'd be a good idea, right? You, know, you, you judge, but um, okay, here we go. Now, maybe, maybe that might be your issue. Um, maybe you justify it because you tell yourself, oh, well, it's not a real person and I can't be wrongdoing, wronging them if it's not a real person. Well, let me say, aside from the damage that porn does to your own soul, aside from the slavery that you are placing yourself under because it will be addictive, and despite the disrespect it will create in the way in which you will see other women and other men, does it do any wrong to others? Well, just ask Maggie Cruz, who was here last month, who has spent the last few years rescuing Cambodian girls from the sex trade. Ask her about the deep damage that it's done to them. Ask her about the dishonor, ask her about the lifelong shame that they carry that only Christ can rescue them from. Ask them about the damage that is done to their sense of self, how they feel alienated and unable to return to their families. And then Paul says it straight. He says, the Lord will punish all who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. This is a warning. He's not posing a hypothetical here. He says the Lord will punish the sexually immoral because sexual immorality wrongs people whom God made to be holy. If we wrong other people like that, he will pay us back. Literally, the Lord is described here as an avenger, one who pays back wrong that's been done to others. How will he punish? We're not told specifically. Certainly there is punishment in this life. If we, we are often given over to the sin, it damages our relationships, it hurts people we love. But you look at almost any New Testament letter, I made a whole list of the passages on Wednesday night, it took me about four minutes. Um, it's a consistent teaching in every letter that the punishment could also refer to the day of judgment. Two verses. Hebrews chapter 13, verse four. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure because God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Now he writes that to believers. Or 1 Corinthians 6, again a letter written to a church, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? God, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He said don't be deceived on this. The fact that he says don't be deceived means we can be deceived, means that we will deceive ourselves into thinking this, but he says don't be. Don't fall for the lie. It's not that sexual immorality is the only sin that can take us to hell, but it's a pretty common one. That's why it's mentioned so often. And sex drive is basic to us all. It's very powerful. 
That means it's a common Achilles heel and none of us ought to think ourselves beyond being able to fall in this way. Which is why his warning is so strong. Verse eight, therefore anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, if you're visiting, you've just landed in the middle of a very heavy talk, right? (laughs) I wasn't expecting this when I woke up this morning. I apologize. Look, we have been working our way through 1 Thessalonians. This happens to be the passage that you've arrived on today. You might want to read the rest of the book. It's very encouraging. (laughs) This is his hardest punch, right? So this is our passage. Um, I didn't just pick it because you're here, right? But maybe it's helpful for you, all right. Um, More urgent than our urges is the reality of God's judgment. We can't afford not to deal with this. Is there any way, if you've fallen, to avoid God's judgment? Of course there is. Because the same God who gives you his Holy Spirit also sent his son to die for you once and for all of your sins. So the way to avoid God's judgment, it's to listen to the gospel, isn't it? It's to come to Christ. It's to repent of your sins and to believe the good news. That's the way. You might say, look, you don't know me. I have tried repenting. I keep falling. I want to say to you, as as your pastor, you can be freed if you've become an addict here. How can you be freed? Well, if you've been indulging often over years, stopping that is going to take time, but you can be free. As well as believing the gospel, there are several steps. First of all, you need to admit it. You do need to confess to someone, a trusted, mature Christian friend. I want to say, if you can't think of anyone, I can be that person for you, and I won't come down on you like a ton of bricks, all right? I want to help you. Secondly, you need to pray in Jesus' name that, and keep praying that he would deliver you from evil and temptation. It's the Lord's Prayer. Deliver me from the evil one. Lead me not into temptation. Keep praying it. Third, you will need to take radical action to remove as far as possible yourself from the place of temptation. So you might think, no screens in my bedroom. There's just an understanding in your household. Phones get left outside. Laptops get left outside. But then you need to remember your identity. This is really key. You need to remember who you are. Look at verse seven. Paul says, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. He has sanctified you. He has made you holy in Christ. That is who you are. Or 1 Corinthians 6, you know, after Paul has warned the Corinthians about not being deceived, he says about sexual immorality and other things, he says, that's what some of you were. But here's your identity, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. I take it, he takes them back to their identity because understanding who you are now because of Jesus is key for you being able to get over this. So a helpful prayer against lies that Satan may plant, that we're just addicts and that's it, is to be thankful for who you are. I thank you that in Christ I am washed clean of the guilt of my sin. I thank you that in Christ I am sanctified and made holy, not because of me, but because of him. I thank you that in Christ I have been justified and declared righteous, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. 
I thank you that in Christ I am set free from the power of sin. Help me to live in this way, not in slavery to sin, but in slavery to righteousness, which you've called me to. And then lastly, and it's really important, you need to make yourself accountable. That is, you need to get in a relationship with a Christian, mature Christian person who knows you, who loves you, and who can ring you at any time of the day, and who you're completely honest with. Just knowing that they can do that often helps you to say no, <laughs> okay? Now, there's obviously more to be said on this, but if you're struggling, what I'm saying to you gently is please reach out because you do not need to stay in it. God's will for us is that we should fight and avoid sexual immorality and instead learn to control our bodies so that how we relate to one another as men and women is holy and honorable and that we don't wrong anyone. And now, extremely quickly, in about two minutes, God wants us to use our bodies to work. Uh, verses nine to 12. This isn't so much about getting tasks done as about loving one another. Paul says about lo your love for one another, we don't need to write to you because you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. He's speaking about love, but now he's talking about work. You ought to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that you may not be dependent upon anybody. Working in a job is a good thing. It enables us to provide for ourselves instead of being dependent upon others. Working with our job with our head down, doing the work quietly, wins the respect of outsiders. Working in a job gives us capacity to be generous to other people who are in need. That pleases God, and Paul urges it of us. He's like a dad urging children to live lives that are worthy. You might summarize this, you might think, well, dad's just told us, control yourselves and get a job. <laughs> He's actually doing more than that. He's urging you to live lives worthy of God. God who has called us into his kingdom and glory. In other words, God who has given us identity, part of his kingdom, and he's given us purpose, eternal purpose, his glory. Father, thank you for this fatherly word from Paul, our apostle, to us. Hard-hitting, raw, honest, squeamish, but boy, we really needed to hear it. So help us today and this week as we go home to take it to heart, to think on it, and help us to live lives that please you. In Jesus' name, amen.